Welcome to the Sufi Heart Podcast with Omid Safi, featuring teachings and stories from the wisdom of the Islamic tradition. Omid invites you to a meditation on the transformative power of love and recalling the necessity of healing our own hearts through healing the world. If you'd like to support Omid's podcast, please visit BeHereNowNetwork.com forward slash Omid. Hello. This is Omid Safi, and I'd like to welcome you back to the Sufi Heart Podcast. Uh, If you've been listening to our programs, you know that typically what um, we do is that I share with you some gems and some jewels from the heart of the Islamic tradition. could be Rumi or Kharagani or Attar. Um, Sometimes we might venture further and have some teachings of um, Martin Luther King or Vincent Harding or Rabbi Heschel. And um, I offer you those teachings and then step back and um, each of you, each of us, um, carries on that journey with the teachings on our own. And today we are going to do something a little different. Um, You're going to see in action um, first two people, one of them being me and the other a friend, and then beyond us, a whole community of people that we are connected to, uh, try to live into these beautiful teachings of compassion kindness, forgiveness, justice, community, in the face of one of the most divisive and heart-wrenching experiences that we as a country have had, and in fact, um, one of the most devastating episodes of our shared human history and that is September the 11th. Um, Of course, we're mindful of the fact that we recently observed the 20th anniversary of September 11, and doubtless you had a chance to observe so many commemorations. The story that I want to share with you is one that's very deeply personal to me, because it involves um, my own experiences, but not just me, Um, also a former student who has since gone on to become a very dear friend, Amy, Amy Mastrosink. And the story goes back to the horrific um, days and weeks and months after September 11, when I was teaching at a school in New York. And I was asked to teach a course on history, culture, and contemporary realities of the Middle East. I agreed. Um, We covered material going back to the rise of Islam 
and the glory of Islamic civilization. We talked about uh, the discoveries in philosophy and sciences and medicine in places like Baghdad. We talked about places like Andalusia, where Muslims and Jews and Christians lived together far more peacefully than they certainly did elsewhere in Europe. We talked about the Ottoman Empire. And then we moved closer and closer to the contemporary time period. We talked about colonialism and nationalism, Palestine-Israel, the Iranian Revolution, the rise of Wahhabi ideology in Saudi Arabia, 9-11, and the catastrophic and disastrous American wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. We talked about the death of 2,900 some odd people in New York and Pennsylvania. And we talked about the death of hundreds of thousands of also innocent people in Afghanistan and Iraq and beyond. It was a challenging course and an unflinchingly honest course in which we tried to the best of our ability to be guided by these principles that each and every single life is sacred and precious, that every soul is, to use Christian language, a child of God. And um, it was a very powerful experience for a school located in the state of New York. So many of our students with deep um, connections to New York City. And um, when the semester was over, quite a lot of the students came up to me on the last day of class, and um, they expressed their gratitude for this journey that we had been on. And um, I told them how meaningful it had been to me. There was also uh, a young lady who came up, and uh, this is Amy, Amy Mastrosink. And she also thanked me, and I thanked her. And then she said a sentence that has continued to haunt me for years. She said simply, um, my father was in the towers. And I still remember that feeling of my mind spinning around and around and around trying to grapple with the meaning of this sentence. What, what does it mean my father was in the towers? And, and it dawned on me, um, of course, that Amy is um, one of the thousands and thousands of Americans who had lost a loved one to the horrific attacks of September 11. And before I could even get out a word or a sentence to her, 
my mind started playing backwards all the lectures that I had given during the course of the semester. Um, how had I spoken about all of these events? Um, if I had been outraged about the death of hundreds of thousands of innocent Afghanis, um, Afghan people, and Iraqis, had I spoken with the same concern and compassion and even outrage uh, about the death of those 2,900 people who perished in New York and Pennsylvania. I eventually just fumbled out a sentence. Um, why didn't you tell me? And uh, Amy answered, I wanted to be here to learn why would someone had wanted to kill my dad. That sentence and that conversation has changed both of our lives. Um, it has certainly changed mine. And I think it has also changed Amy. She went on to take some more um, classes with me at that same school. And um, she went on to become a teacher in the state of New York, in Long Island, uh, teaching her students in some ways guided by those values of compassion and kindness and justice that um, we had all been trying to live into in that class and in those difficult um, conversations and shared journeys. Some, some years ago, I had a chance to invite uh, a few teachers over to our university for um, a summer institute, and Amy was one of the teachers that I was honored to invite. It was wonderful to have a chance to get reacquainted after um, 15 or so years and to see how she is now um, the teacher. The student has become the teacher and she's teaching hundreds and hundreds of students um, along these beautiful teachings. And uh, this summer, this past summer, um, I received a phone call from her very happy to talk with her again and see what was going on in her life. And uh, she said that I have a little favor to ask you. Well, you know, when people who mean that much to you ask for a favor, you, you listen and you listen carefully. She said, um, as you know, we're coming on the 20th anniversary of that event the September 11 attacks. And she said that um, people in her school know about who she is, whom she has lost, and how that event has in so many ways um, changed her life. It hasn't defined her permanently, but um, it, it, has, it has shaped her without a doubt. And that uh, she wanted to give a talk, and she had been asked to give a talk, to the 2,000 or so 
uh, students and faculty and staff at her school. And um, she also wanted to involve me because she said uh, that the conversations and the teachings that we had shared together have been such a part of her and her life. Of course, I agreed. Uh, my friends, what you're going to listen to today is a little different than our usual format. Uh, you're going to first listen to Amy talk in this very open and honest, at times tearful, way of reckoning with pain. How do you come to terms with a wound that is always there. It may scab over, it might heal, but the wound is also there. The pain is always there. How does one come to reckon with that kind of a loss and that kind of a pain? Um, and then after that, Amy will um, introduce me and what you're going to listen to is the, um, the talk that I got to share with those 2,000 um, students and faculty at the school in Long Island. Um, if you're interested, you can go online and watch the video as well. But uh, there's something very intimate about the voice and the human voice. So I invite you to now join me in listening to Amy Mastrosink share these teachings with uh, her community, with her students, with her friends. And uh, I am honored, in fact, to be counted as one of her friends. Uh, this is how we journey together. Uh, we find the teachings that save lives and transform our beings. And we do our best to live into them. So I'm honored to invite you to listen first to my friend Amy, and then to some of my own words. I would then invite you to think about how you might be able to take some of these teachings and carry them with you through the course of your own life. May you, as always, be blessed. Thank you, friends, for joining us on the Sufi Heart Podcast. And I invite you now to listen to Amy. Good morning. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Miss Mastro Cinque. I'm an English teacher here at Hicksville High School. I teach ninth grade, 11 honors and 12th grade English. This is my seventh year at Hicksville, working at the high school. Thank you for coming today. I know it really wasn't a choice, <laughs> but I hope, I hope that while you're here, you will learn something. And even though it is the anniversary of 9-11 tomorrow, which is a fairly dark moment in history for both America and the world, 
I hope that you will find light in what is spoken about today. Because in darkness, there is always light. I grew up in Kings Park, New York. It is about a half hour east of here, and it's a small town on the North Shore. The population there is mostly Irish and Italian. People there mostly looked like me. In short, there was and still is very little diversity. I lived there with my mother, my father, and my younger brother, Peter. My father was tough on us. He expected a lot, and he vocalized that often. It wasn't easy living up to his expectations, but I tried my best, and I think I turned out okay. My father grew up playing soccer, and as an adult, he also played. He coached me and a group of other girls on an intramural team for years. We were really good. It was weird. It was like this, sorry, give me one second. This group of girls who normally wouldn't hang out together, normally weren't really friends, but when we got on the field, the valedictorian of our class, me, the cheerleader, our other friends who sometimes didn't even come to class at school, kind of came together on this field to play for my dad. And he would be screaming on the sidelines so his voice was hoarse. And he was so happy when we would win pretty much every game. We played for my dad. We came together for my dad. And he really, really loved it. He also served as president of the soccer club. He was dedicated, so much so that on the morning of September 11th, he chose to go to work earlier than normal so that he could leave the city with enough time to coach a goalie clinic later that afternoon. The morning of September 11th was beautiful. It was sunny and it was clear. It was like today, right? One of those days that was warm but not too warm. My first period class was chemistry, which I already disliked. <laughs> I wasn't a math person, and if you know me at all, numbers, ew. <laughs> Miss Dacre is my teacher. She was nice, but she was no match for some of the kids in my class who would rather make fun of the way she described polar molecules than learn what a polar molecule actually was. My friends and I had stopped in the hallway to speak to our old lacrosse coach, Mr. Quigley. He was recently promoted to assistant principal. I jokingly called him vice president, to which he laughed, rolled his eyes, and told us to get to class. I remember that day so vividly. It was the early 2000s, so my fashion choices were not completely on point. But my Steve Madden wedges were a perfect complement to my carefully curated outfits of purple buffalo pants and a butterfly t-shirt. I said goodbye to my friends and walked quickly to class, took my seat behind my friend Lauren, and waited for Ms. Dakers to start. Class began as normal. She made another weird joke about how polar bears swim in water, and therefore water is a polar molecule. And she directed our attention to the back of the room where our Bunsen burners were lined up on lab tables. I gathered with my lab group and began the procedure. Immediately after, 
there was an announcement on the loudspeaker. I froze as our principal told us that it seemed as if the World Trade Center was under attack. It seemed, he said, as if planes were flown into the buildings. We were told to stay in our rooms and stand by for updates. I looked around at my classmates, all of whom were completely shocked, and my gaze fell on one girl named Rachel. She was crying. Her uncle worked in the World Trade Center, and she was scared. As I walked over to comfort Rachel, it hit me. My father worked on the 100th floor. Wait a second. Wait, the 100th floor. Wait. I knew right away the likelihood of his survival was slim to none. My father worked on the 100th floor of the North Tower. At 8.46 AM, Flight 11 crashed into the North Tower. Between floors 93 and 99, one hour and 42 minutes later, the North Tower collapsed, filling the area with smoke, debris, and fear. I don't remember much after that. My friends told me I crumbled to the floor. They told me they picked me up, and they told me they carried me to the guidance office. I remember being in the guidance office. I remember calling my mother, who had just begun working in one of the district's elementary schools as a speech pathologist. I remember her telling me that we were going to figure it out, and it was all going to be okay. I remember trying to convince the security guard that my cousin John who after graduation was told that he was never allowed back in the school, was my relative. And he was probably there to make sure that I was okay. And he wanted to take me home. When someone in your life passes away, it is incredibly sad. But there is definity. For the most part, you know what happened. You say goodbye, you mourn, and if you choose, you go back to a grave or to a site to visit from time to time. When you lose someone to this kind of violence, you don't get to do any of that. There is no time to grieve because there is still hope they may come back to you alive. I had dreams that my father would come back after years and say, see, I told you I'd be back. What were you so worried for? But those dreams were never realized. The night of 9-11, my grandparents came over to stay with my brother, my mother, and me. We were watching the news. Any chance to get more clarity on what had happened? The rescue teams were finding people alive. And we were hopeful that my father would be one of those people. I have this distinct memory of that night. I was sitting on the floor. I think my mom was in a chair. My brother was probably next to me. And they were interviewing relatives of people who had loved ones in the towers or had loved ones who were FDNY or NYPD paramedics. 
but their loved ones came home. And I remember on the TV this woman talking to, I guess it was Diane Sawyer or Barbara Walters, and she broke down in tears and she said, for a moment there, I thought I was a widow. For the first time, I saw my mom break down. She got up in tears and she said, I can't do this. I can't listen to this and I can't watch this. And she went into her room. It was a really hard day, night, following few days. There were these websites, so we didn't have the luxury of Wi-Fi. Everything was dial-up back then, right? So if you wanted to go on the computer, you had to decide that you were not going to be on the phone. And we had to make these very serious decisions when we would go on the computer or when we would be on the phone. Because we had not heard from my father and because so many people were missing, a lot of people relied on these websites to report if they've seen someone in the towers. And so we would call other people, have them log on to their computers because we were still waiting for phone calls. And there were reports saying, we saw Rudy, which is my father's name. We saw him leave. We saw him alive, but we never heard from him. My father didn't own a cell phone. He refused. He had brain cancer when I was in ninth grade and thought that cell phones and radiation would bring it back. And he was stubborn. And so he said, no cell phones for anyone. Not you, not me, no one in the family. But we still waited by the phone. And we waited and we waited. We did have one phone call that came. I answered with no one on the other line. And I remember screaming into the phone, who is it? Tell me it's you. But we never got an answer. In the days following 9-11, my mother went looking for my father. She took photos of him to each hospital, and shelter in Manhattan. To this day, I'll never know how she was able to do that. How strong she was to tell her story over and over again in hopes just to bring dad back home. We had friends and family in and out of the house at all times. I couldn't eat, I couldn't sleep. But after about a week of being home, we decided it was time to go back to school. My father still had not been found, and I knew what that meant. I knew he was most likely not coming home, and I knew I had things I needed to do. It was my junior year of high school. I was in advanced classes. I was a competitive cheerleader, an active member of the school community, and I knew what my father would have expected. He would have said, Amy, get to school. Get your life together, figure it out. And I did, or at least I tried. <laughs> when I walked into school the following Tuesday, people stared hard. 
teachers put their arms around me and smiled at me with pity. They told me to hang in there, kiddo, and insisted if I needed more time to complete my assignments, it would not be a problem. I walked through school half the time like a zombie. The other half, I was leaving class for a quick cry in the bathroom, my group of girlfriends following me. On the days I found myself laughing or smiling, I chastised myself for feeling happy when my father was most likely dead in a pile of rubble. There's no roadmap to grief. I can't, no one can tell you how to feel. And I was 15, a few weeks away from my 16th birthday. I had no knowledge of how to deal with what I was dealing with. All I knew is I had to keep going, just keep going, right? I'm on autopilot. I just had to keep going, go to class, go to school, be with my friends, just try to live life normally. But life was anything but normal. Every day I encountered kids from school who had other 9-11 stories, stories of how their uncle or family friend was also there that day, but made it home. I wasn't sure why they wanted to tell me these stories when they knew very well that my father was still missing. But now as an adult, I think it was just their way of trying to connect. Sometimes people don't know how to deal with other people's grief, especially kids. And so I understand that now, but at the time, it was not helpful. <laughs> in October of my junior year, my mother sat me and my brother Peter down to inform us that we were done looking and we would be holding a memorial service at the local church. My father was so well known in the community that it became standing room only and the crowd had to eventually extend into the yard of the church. At 15, a few weeks before my 16th birthday, I eulogized my father in front of hundreds of people and said goodbye. The rest of my high school career was marked by this tragedy, but I navigated my junior and senior years the best I knew how. I excelled in school, I cheered, I ran track, I served on the student council, I had my pick of teachers who wanted to write me college recommendation letters. In fact, I had to deny some of them. I went to prom, graduation, and got ready to enter my first choice college, Colgate University. I looked well-adjusted. I looked strong. But inside, I was screaming. I was sad. I was lonely. I was confused. And I was angry. I entered Colgate, a small upstate private college, the winter of 2004. I had missed my first semester due to a severe illness in which I was hospitalized. But in January, my doctors cleared me, and I joined the rest of the class of 2007 at the gate, as we called it. Colgate has these four core classes, right? One of them is core cultures. You have to take a core cultures class. I had wanted to register for core Africa, but the registrar informed me that the only open class was core Middle East, jointly taught by two professors from both the Religion and Middle Eastern Studies Department, Professor Noor Khan and Professor Omid Safi. I was furious. How was I, a daughter of 9-11, supposed to sit through a whole semester of Middle Eastern Studies? 
In my mind, at that time, the Middle East had taken my father away from me early, forced me to reconcile feelings I wasn't ready to deal with, and ignited inside of me a deep, dark depression. However, this was school, and I was never one to say no to school of any kind. So I stepped hesitantly into class on that first day, ready to get good grades, but also kind of ready for combat. My protective armor was on. There was no way I was changing my mind. My attitude was ready, but it was no match for Omid. <laughs> The lead professor on the course, Omid Safi, was soft-spoken and gentle. He made valid points, presented us with reading, and slowly, silently, and carefully chipped away at my hostile energy. <laughs> I would leave his class hungry for more information and answers. I was present, I was curious, and I was open. After his class ended, I took more classes with Omid and learned more about Islam more about the Middle East. I read the Quran cover to cover and highlighted the passages that seemed similar to stories I learned in my childhood while I was studying for my bat mitzvah. Wait a second, I thought. This is not some foreign otherdom. This is something I know. During my junior year at Colgate, Omid left to teach at Duke University. And by that time, I had taken so many religion classes that he told me I should declare it as my second major. I cried when he left, my mentor and my friend, but was hopeful I'd see and speak to him again. This year, when I spoke to Mr. Williams and decided that I wanted to speak to you on the 20th anniversary of 9-11, I knew I had to involve Omid. Please listen as I introduce this very smart, very caring soul, Dr. Omid Safi, Professor of Asian and Middle Eastern Studies at Duke University. Hi, my name is Omid Safi, and I am a professor of Islamic studies. I wanted to take this opportunity as we approach the 20-year anniversary of the horrific attacks of September the 11th and offer some personal thoughts and reflections about lessons that I think we can learn from um, the last 20 years. There'll be other times and places, maybe other lectures that you can turn to for um, more of a political analysis and historical review. Um, but in this conversation, in this time that we have, I want us to sit a little bit with lessons that as a, as a nation, as a human community, perhaps we can learn. And um, each of us can only tell our own story. We can only talk about the life that we have lived um, through the communities that we are a part of. And uh, my own story is that on that horrific Tuesday, um, I was a teacher. I was a professor in a school in upstate New York uh, with deep ties to New York City. 
about 40% of our students came from there. The parents and their communities worked there. And um, I remember that I went into an 8.30 class and we got out at um, 9.45. And by that time, we had um, already heard about um, these horrible um, rumors that were coming out of New York City. Those were days uh, before there were such things as cell phones. So um, I walked my students one at a time to the pay phones um, in the student center and to have them try to reach, usually in vain, um, their parents and their loved ones who were working in the city. I remember as I was walking my class over to the student center, I came across one of the very few Muslim students on campus, a hijab-wearing African-American student who um, looked at me and just said, I pray to God that it wasn't a Muslim who did this. Um, already just a few minutes after the first attacks, that was one of her concerns is how this might um, launch a whole level of vitriol and animosity towards Muslims or people who are perceived as being Muslim. Uh, in fact, shortly after that horrible attack, the first two um, victims of hate crimes in this country, one of them was a Sikh man, not a Muslim, but his um, killers assumed that he was. And the other one was an Egyptian man of Christian background, but he had brown skin the way that I do, the way that many people around the world do. Um, and in, in some ways we have seen over the course of the last 20 years, an escalation of the level of animosity and vitriol against uh, Muslims, against African-Americans, against Hispanics, against Jews, against um, so many people of different um, backgrounds. Of course, this all led up to the election of a president who ran on a campaign where he claimed that Islam hates us. And introduced uh, the Muslim ban and, and so on. But what I want to focus on is a more um, personal and intimate story. Uh, shortly after that um, horrible fall of 2001, uh, I was asked to teach a course on the introduction to the Middle East. And I, I did. We covered um, some beautiful and glorious topics, the rise of Islam, the magnificence of medieval Baghdad, and the advances in philosophy and science and literature in Islamic civilization. Um, Muslim Spain and the Ottoman Empire as places um, remarkably by the standards of that time where Jews and Muslims and Christians could live together certainly much more peacefully than they were living in Europe or in other parts of the world. And then as we worked our way towards contemporary time periods, we talked about colonialism. Uh, we talked about uh, the Palestinian-Israeli conflict. 
talked about the Iranian revolution. We talked about 9-11. We talked about the Taliban and Al-Qaeda and the U.S. war against Afghanistan, the U.S. war against Iraq. Um, it was a challenging course, and I tried to do it with as much integrity and honesty as we could. Uh, when the semester was over, some of the students came up to me to thank me for um, what I hope was a great semester. And um, there was a young woman, um, maybe she's known to some of you, named Amy. Um, Amy Mastersing, who came up to me and she thanked me for the course. And then she very softly whispered, um, my father was in the towers. And I still remember, I heard those words. I knew what each one of them meant. But I remember my mind just circling and circling to try to figure out my father was in the towers. And all of a sudden, it dawned on me that this is one of the family members, the children whose parents had perished, 2,900 and some odd people um, who had perished on that terrible Tuesday morning. And in my mind, before I could even get any words out, I, um, I almost played the whole semester backwards. How, how had I talked about the victims of American bombings in Afghanistan? How had I talked about sanctions? How had I talked about um, everything that perhaps our country is doing around the world? Um, sometimes for good causes, but all too often out of um, militaristic desires and ambitions and a greed for oil. How had I talked about the victims of 9-11? Um, had I done my best to honor and hold as sacred those American lives every bit as I hold the lives of people from Afghanistan and Iraq and Iran and Palestine and Israel. And eventually I just fumbled and stumbled over my words and I came up with um, the following statement. I said, why didn't you tell me? And she said, well, I, I didn't want to... Um, get you to censor yourself. I really took this class because I wanted to understand why would anyone want to kill people like my dad? Um, her dad's name is Rudy, was Rudy. And then she said, um, I'm thankful by having learned that the religion of Islam is a beautiful religion and that every community has its um, bad people, but um, the faith of Islam is one thing and that the horrible actions of these people, something else. Well, um, that 
drove a message home to me that schools and the classroom is a really sacred place. It's one of those places that we come to and we try to have honest and difficult conversations. The conversations are sometimes extraordinarily challenging. Each one of us has our emotions and our passions alongside um, the academic content and the intellectual material that we're grappling with. Part of being a mature person, a mature nation, a mature human community is not to um, deny our emotions, not to suppress them, but to hold them, to observe them. And in this country, we have done such an extraordinary job, as we should, of honoring the deep humanity of every one of the victims of September 11th. Who were they? What were they like? What were their life stories? Who mourns them? Who misses them? And we know that we haven't done the same with the tens of thousands of people in Afghanistan or Palestine or Iraq, Syria, whose lives have been destroyed, at times as a result of direct American actions in those countries. So what are we really asking for? No one is saying or suggesting that we should devalue the life of our loved ones. No. But what we are calling each other to do is, as we center our lives and center our pain, our suffering, our loved ones, to be a mature community, to be a mature nation, we also need to connect our pain to other people's pain, including people on the other side of the world to whom we are not related nationally, ethnically, racially, linguistically, or religiously. But by the virtue of the fact that they too are human, they are somebody's baby, that their mama and their daddy loved them and sacrificed for them. You're somebody's baby. Somebody loved you. Somebody sacrificed for you. And that's the same way as it is on the other side of the planet. So we want to be connecting together our pain, our humanity, our connection. We're in this thing together. Now we know, now we see this, that what happens in another part of the world has a deep effect on our life here. Whether it's COVID, that's something that starts out in another country, comes over here, or it's the environmental crisis, that it affects all of us, so is the consequence of trying to live in peace and harmony and justice and love together. These are challenging days to do that. Um, sometimes it seems to me like the, if you turn on the TV, the model that you get is 
whoever shouts the loudest must have the greatest truth. And I'm not so persuaded that that's true. I think there is a different way. There is a better way. We need a little bit less heat and a lot more light. We need to be able to reach out together. And our schools and our classrooms are one of those public spaces in which we can still do this and we can do it beautifully. We can learn together. It's one thing for us to learn about Muslims or Middle Easterners or Jews or Americans or whoever. It's another thing that where we say, well, some of those folks are also here. <laughs> and so we can learn from them. Well, they have things to teach us. The place that we're trying to get to is where we make that commitment to learn with one another. We all have things to teach and we all have things to learn. And to hold as sacred the life of each individual as having that exact same intrinsic value as the life of another. If we do that, and when we do that, it might be that together we can be a part of creating an America that doesn't exist yet, but we all want to be citizens of an America that actually stands for liberty and justice for all, welcoming refugees and immigrants, and a land in which the inalienable rights of all of us means all of us. I hope that you will be partners and citizens in creating that world that we all wish to be a part of. So for Amy, for her father, Rudy, and for all of the Amys around the world whose names we know and we don't, be a part of that creation. May you be blessed.